1: Or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Morris Brody. One of the major reasons I wanted to do this interview series was to talk to people who had done research into the reactions of people outside of Spain to the events that were occurring within Spain. It can be challenging to research this myself given, you know, the scale of the world, and so I was very excited when Dr. Brody agreed to do the interview. Dr. Brody is the author of Transatlantic Anarchism During the Spanish Civil War and Revolution, 1936 to 1939: Fury over Spain, which discusses the anarchist movements in Britain, Ireland, and the United States before and during the Spanish Civil War. This will be just the first of several interviews in which we discuss how various groups around the world viewed the Spanish Civil War. As always, you can find more information about the book, as well as a link, on the interviews page of the website, which is in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm here with Dr. Morris Brody from Queens University in Belfast and the author of Transatlantic Anarchism During the Spanish Civil War and Revolution, 1936 to 1939, Fury Over Spain. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm very well, Leslie. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and thank you for asking. So let's just uh, jump right in here. Uh, Your book focuses on the anarchist movements in three countries outside of Spain. Uh, Within these nations, how numerous were the anarchist movements and and where was their support primarily located?
0: So the the three countries that my my book looks at are Britain, the United States and Ireland. Uh, And so the anarchist movements in each of these countries during the kind of mid 1930s had different uh, styles. Um, in Britain, uh, most anarchists were grouped around small small groups. Uh, the biggest uh, kind of clusters would be in places like London and in Glasgow. Uh, London, the main group was the Freedom Group, which uh, published a journal of the same name, Freedom, uh, which was found by um, Peter Kapotkin back in the eighteen nineties. Uh, and in Glasgow, there were two. Uh, groups known as the United Socialist Movement and the Anti-Parliamentary Communist Federation. Uh, There were also various other smaller groups dotted around the country in places like uh, Bristol, Liverpool and Plymouth. Um, In terms of numbers, probably would only be about a few hundred if you're adding everyone together. Um, Over in Ireland, uh, the situation was slightly worse from an anarchist perspective. Uh, There was only a few scattered individuals in the bigger cities of of Belfast and Dublin. Um, The kind of radical movement in Ireland had been kind of subsumed a lot by the the Irish Republican movement um, and various anarchists were actually members of uh, the Irish Republican army at at various points in their their lives. Um, So anarchism was certainly weakest in in Ireland at this point. Uh, In the United States, uh, the makeup is slightly different again. Uh, there's kind of two broad streams I suppose you could say Uh, there's the kind of labour orientated anarchist anarcho-syndicalist aspect um, which is kind of the leftovers of the industrial workers of the world the IWW or wobblies Uh, and they're kind of grouped around still in cities like uh, Detroit and Chicago Uh, then you've also got an immigrant anarchist uh, movement um, people coming over from mainly Europe so you have an Italian anarchist movement. You've got a Spanish anarchist movement, uh, Eastern European kind of Jewish anarchist movement, Russian anarchist movement. And these kind of follow um, immigration patterns in that they're grouped quite a lot around the coast. So there's lots of groups in New York and places like New Jersey. Uh, there's also uh, several groups in Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco and other parts of California. And there's also a kind of Spanish anarchist community in, in Ohio and some of the Rust Belt areas. Uh, in terms of numbers, um, the best way of looking at that is through newspaper circulation. Uh, so the Free Voice of Labour, which was a, a Jewish, a Yiddish language uh, anarchist newspaper, uh, that had a, a circulation of about 150,000 in World War I. Uh, however, by 1934, this had dropped to about 5,000 uh, and various other major anarchist newspapers in, in the United States, the circulation kind of varies between about 3,000. So it's in the thousands uh, in terms of sympathisers, active anarchist movement, it's going to be a little bit less than that. Um, but certainly compared to Britain and Ireland, there it's a healthier movement, but in comparison to Spain, where there's upwards of, you know, Estimates about, about a million members of the CNT, uh, the National Confederation of Labour, uh, certainly much weaker compared to, to Spain.
1: Um, when we when we look at the United States and in, in Britain, uh, you mentioned that there, there were like groups of anarchists in various places. How much did they cooperate? Did they like see themselves pursuing the same goal or were they pretty divergent in um, sort of their their ideological beliefs at this point?
0: I mean, certainly um, they were all trying to go towards anarchism um, <laughs> they come from a kind of post enlightenment tradition uh, coming out sort of critique of the French Revolution is basically where the kind of the anarchist movement comes from a uh, critique of kind of Jacobinism and authoritarianism. Um, and there are various strands of anarchism, which people disagree upon, anarcho-syndicalism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-individualism, and all these things. And... Um, and so there's disagreements and kind of personal problems in that sense. But there's also um, lots of exchange between the groups in the different countries. Uh, there's migration exchanges. Uh, people move from different countries to another. Um, for example, there's uh, an Irish anarchist called uh, Patrick Reeds who comes to Spain to fight in the international brigades, who was born uh, on the ferry to Liverpool uh, in England from Dublin. To, to Irish parents lived in England, then went back to to Dublin and in uh, Ireland, and then to uh, to United States. Um, so he's kind of bringing anarchist ideas with him. Uh, people like uh, Rudolf Rocker as well and Emma Goldman. Uh, they would also bring uh, anarchist ideas. And newspapers were exchanged. There were um, kind of ways that. Young anarchists, for example, who created a a newspaper called Vanguard, they would send correspondence to uh, an older English anarchist called Tom Keel, who lived in a White Way Colony, which was a kind of anarchist-style colony in in, uh, in the south of England, and they would exchange literature, they would exchange correspondence, uh, books. Um, There was also, um, in terms of coordination, there was a thing called the International Working Men's Association, uh, which is a kind of... Reimagining of the original first international, um, the famous one with uh, Karl Marx and uh, Mikhail Bakunin. Uh, this was formed in 1922 in Berlin, and various um, international anarchist organisations were affiliated to it. The CNT uh, was the kind of major uh, organisation in, in that uh, federation, uh, and there were also ones like uh, the Free Union uh, Workers, Free Workers Union of, of Germany. Um a central organisation of uh, the workers of Sweden, and there was also the Italian Syndicalist Union. The IWW never actually joined the IWMA, uh, but there was certainly contacts between the two of them, and the IWW is kind of viewed as the American version of the, the CMT, I suppose. So, I mean, it, it's a transnational movement, and there's lots of information and idea exchanges between the different uh, different networks and different nodes and this kind of increases uh, with the advent of the Spanish Civil War.
1: Okay, so so after the events of July 1936, uh, which would kind of mark the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, how informed were all of these groups about events that were happening in Spain, and what was their kind of reaction to to what was developing?
0: So there were initially um, contacts where kind of Sporadic, I suppose you could say. Um, everyone was quite interested in what was happening in Spain because uh, you know Spain had the, the biggest anarchist movement. It was kind of viewed as a kind of beacon of light uh, for the international anarchist movement. Um, it was difficult to get information out in the very start of the conflict, just basically due to the war zone. Uh, but very quickly, the, the CNT uh, managed to set up international bureaus to try to coordinate propaganda. So they set up uh, the cnt fai London Bureau uh, in London, and then the North American Bureau in uh, in New York. Initially, uh, there were also various uh, newspapers which have been launched by uh, anarchist groups in uh, the transatlantic countries, and these were dedicated to uh, spreading the kind of anarchist perspective on Spain. Uh, there were also various organizations that were dedicated to fundraising. Um, for example, the uh, International Libertarian Committee Against Fascism in Spain, which was located in Detroit, um, they sent almost ten thousand dollars between July nineteen thirty six and October nineteen thirty seven, uh, which is over one hundred eighty thousand dollars in today's money. Um, so there was sort of widespread fundraising um, due to like meetings, film showings, uh, speaking tours. Uh, they organized picnics, um, various things in order to kind of spread uh, anarchist propaganda effectively. And at the same time, anarchists were coming over to Spain to work for the CNT uh, in their foreign language division, uh, which was located in Barcelona, um, in via de Ruti, which is now via Laiotana. Um, And this, these were in charge of uh, sending out the CNT uh, Bulletin of Information. Uh, so that was a translation of the original Spanish uh, which would get sent out to various countries throughout the world. Uh, there was several translations. There was an English-language one um, which was sent out to um, to the transatlantic countries. There was also a French one, an Italian one, uh, Polish, uh, Hungarian, uh, even an Esperanto version as well. Um, so there was a real effort to, um, to try to showcase the achievements of the Spanish anarchists to the rest of the world. Um, and there was also a thing that appeared in 1937 called International Anti-Fascist Solidarity called uh, SIA, S-A-I. Um, and this was similarly a kind of f- fundraising organization uh, which connected groups across the world um, to try to raise raise money and raise funds to, to aid uh, what was happening in Spain.
1: Hey, interesting that they had an Esperanto publication.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, The history of Esperanto is is something that I find quite interesting. Uh, The kind of idea of an international language of of the left effectively, Um, and certainly some of the earlier uh, kind of international anarchist uh, congresses uh, in the 1920s, some of them were held in Esperanto, Um, so people did kind of speak it even though no one would have been a native speaker as such.
1: Uh, So, uh, on the... Communist side uh, of the of the civil war. There's the, the very well known international brigades. Um, they were formed by communist volunteers from from all over the world. Uh, were there equivalent groups of anarchist volunteers that went to Spain? I know you mentioned that there were there were individuals, but but were there you know sort of large groups that that volunteered?
0: There were groups that that volunteered. Um, in terms of absolute numbers of foreign anarchists, there's kind of various. Estimates generally between about two and three thousand, compared to the kind of international brigades, which had around 35,000, I suppose, um, volunteers uh, in total. Um, So, some of these anarchist volunteers would have joined the international brigades, uh, but others would have joined the anarchist militias, um, which were the main kind of force in, uh, military force in um, Barcelona and. Aragon during the early months of the war. Um, so you had organize, um, columns like the, the Deruti column, the Escaso column, which were named after well known Spanish anarchist militants. Um, you had colourfully named units like the uh, Battalion of Death and the uh, Death is Master militia, um, and various kind of militias which were made up of um, factories and kind of workers from different areas. So in general, in general, uh, anarchists would appear in Barcelona, uh, not in a very organised manner, but they would uh, head to the CNT uh, headquarters in in Barcelona, uh, which is where also where the foreign language division was was uh, was headquartered, and they would basically ask what was going on, and then they would eventually get sent to to these various militias. Um, so in my book, I've I've found. 115 named individuals from um, Britain, Ireland uh, and the United States who uh, can either be described as anarchists or fought in anarchist militias Uh, and about half of them joined the international brigades and half joined either the anarchist militias or um, other left-wing militias, Um, the same kind of party that George Orwell fought under, uh, the PUM, the uh, Workers' Party of Marxist Unification. And these, uh, these militias were um, kind of unique in the history of, of warfare, I suppose you could say. They had a very different attitude towards military discipline uh, than the international brigades or, in, or indeed the, the Spanish Republican Army. Um, some of the kind of stories you hear about them can be a bit, uh, bit shocking, perhaps, the idea of uh, voting on uh, military engagements, for example, and... Um, You know, if you know, if a commander had an idea about going to uh, a certain uh, attack ground, then occasionally this would be voted on, and if uh, if the volunteers or the militia members um, voted against it, then the action was cancelled and it wouldn't take place. Um, There was no kind of military punishments, things like this, um, which a lot of uh, other. Uh, members of the Republican side were very uh, unsure about and worked hard to get the the, the anarchist militias militarised and incorporated within the the Spanish Republican army, uh, basically to give them a bit more control, um, because anarchist units were sometimes a bit unreliable. uh, And it's kind of interesting hearing uh, foreign volunteers, many of whom um, served in uh, the First World War, for example and seeing uh, anarchist units in action and just thinking what on earth is, is going on here <laughs> um you know it's, it's an ideal um which was kind of forged in in chaos in the chaos of war um but perhaps practically speaking uh, there could have maybe been other ways of organizing the, the militia and the other interesting thing about the militias is that they um they actually allowed women to join um so there were two um, transatlantic anarchists, uh, Melithianas, as they were known as, so female fighters, uh, one of whom was uh, called Greville Texedorf. Uh She was a, an English uh, dancer and a poet. She actually became a kind of novelist afterwards uh, and she fought in the same unit as, uh, her, as her husband, uh, who was a German anarchist called um, Werner Druscher. Um, and so these, you know, the kind of idea of gender equality uh, and the kind of revolutionary Elan, which was... Uh, such an important part of um, anarchist support, international anarchist support for the civil war and also the kind of how Spanish anarchists uh, viewed their participation uh, effectively in defense of the Republican state in, in, in many ways and how they kind of squared that circle of uh, supporting that, that fight.
1: Okay. Um, but When the war ended, it, it doesn't end well for Spanish anarchists. Um, what was the reaction around the world? As you mentioned, like the Spanish anarchists were probably the most powerful anarchist grouping in the world, like the most numerous anyway. Um, was that demoralizing for, for other anarchists sort of scattered uh, around the world?
0: Yes, uh, it, in a word, yes. Um, the course of the war is is basically a kind of slow nibbling away at the revolutionary conquests of the Spanish anarchists. Um, so you had the kind of the, the, the militias in full, full flow and uh, the collectivizations and uh, land seizures and factory occupations, uh, which kind of tried to put an anarchist society um, into practice. Um, but this kind of, the first few months of the, of the war, um, this is what the international anarchist movement really concentrates on. And says like you know finally our ideal is is, is you know being being shown to be uh, to be effective, um, but then after a few months go by, uh, the central government kind of reorganizes itself and begins to push back against this um, this revolutionary uh, tide, um, and so the longer the war goes on, the more compromises the anarchist leadership makes with the republican government. And initially um, the international anarchist movement keeps fairly quiet about this. They, they think, well, you know, it's in the middle of a war zone, so um, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, the CNT joins the, uh, first the Catalan regional government, and then the uh, the central Republican government, um, which, you know, for an anarchist joining a government seems fairly contradictory to their ideals. Um, But there's only a real criticism of this after the May Days in 1937, um, which Orwell talks about in in August to Catalonia, uh, when the kind of revolutionary and um, anti-revolutionary forces kind of fight out uh, in Catalonia and and on the streets of Barcelona. And from this point onwards, the international anarchist movement um, begins to be more vocal in their criticism of the CNT. Um, And by the time... Uh, that Franco's armies are victorious in in April of 1939. The international anarchists have, many of them have had enough of the idea of uh, the popular front, of a united front against fascism. uh, And it really affects their views of what happens in the second world war. Uh, And there's a split in the anarchist movement over whether to support the allies against the Axis powers. and whether to wash their hands of, of, uh, of the alliance and simply go out, take up an anti-war perspective, similar to uh, the majority of anarchists during the First World War. Um, so there is a feeling of, of devastation um, when the Republic falls and when the, you know, the, the cause is, is defeated. Um, and many will leave the movement, um, many will... Um, think that this is the ideal over and uh, they'll they'll just move on, go out of politics altogether. Uh, But others are kind of strengthened in their ideal by the kind of crucible of Spain and will spend the next six years uh, either uh, campaigning against the war or in some cases uh, joining um, armed forces or the resistance uh, and actually fighting against fascism in a a different uh, arena. there's a kind of younger cohort um, which kind of came of age during the Spanish Civil War in the international uh, countries. Um, and they they largely continue their activism um, after, after Spain, even though from a theoretical point of view, there's a lot of questions being asked about the practicality of some of um, the traditional tenets of anarchism. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if Spain gets... tries it and and can't can't complete the job, if you will, then. How are we going to do this? So there's a lot of soul searching that goes on um, after 1939, uh, which isn't really resolved until the rise of the New Left in the 1960s, really. There's a lot of kind of intra-anarchist bickering over what happened in the Civil War and what went wrong. Um, And it takes a long time to recover from that. Um, But there is this idea that the anarchist movement just collapses, after the, the end of the, the Spanish Civil War, which isn't really true. It's tempting to kind of view that as a kind of last wave um, or the ending of the first wave of anarchism. Uh, but I kind of view the two waves, there's an idea of a classical anarchist school and the kind of modern anarchist school. Uh, but there's actually a lot of continuity between those two schools. Uh, and it's, it's, a lot of it is from activists, um, who grew up basically through through the, S- the Spanish Civil War and Revolution.
1: Okay, uh, I know uh, after the Civil War, a lot of was there a lot of anarchists who tried to leave Spain to, to other other places in the world to to sort of escape you know Francoist oppression. Yeah. Uh, Did this have a noticeable effect on on the anarchist movements in these three countries like did Spanish anarchists come to those countries and and, you know have an effect?
0: Yes, um, there was a a CNT exile movement which uh, which relocated to Britain um, in London uh, during, you know, the end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, A lot of the anarchists, Spanish anarchists were concentrated around Catalonia And these effectively got pushed towards the French border. Then when they went over the border, they were rounded up into concentration camps by the French. Um, And those who eventually got released, um, well, some of them didn't get released, but there was a a kind of exile headquarters in Marseille. The Marseille group and the London group are kind of at odds with each other um, because it's basically all to do with the politics of the Civil War the Spanish anarchists who come to um, London are generally the ones who were in Madrid and fled by going via kind of the Alicante direction um, and these were supportive of the Quesado coup at the end of the Civil War which uh, overthrew the Negrín government, um, so it was a kind of anti-communist coup um, and so there's a lot of tension between those two groups over you know, what they did in the last few months of the, of the civil war. And then there's also controversy over the behavior of the French section um, or the CNT in exile in France during the German occupation. Um, there are also ones that come to the United States. Um, the main kind of valve of emigration, of, uh, uh, or for Spanish refugees, Spanish anarchist refugees, is it tends to be Latin America. So there's quite a few that go to to Mexico and places like Venezuela, uh, and uh, the Dominican Republic as well has a, a large number coming. Um, there is a uh, a Spanish anarchist exile um, newspaper which appears in um, in the United States called *Espana Libre*, uh, *Free Spain*, uh, which is. Um, which is edited by a, a Spanish anarchist, uh, Felix Marti Bañez, um, who, who's fled um, from from Catalonia. Um, and there's also there's there's already quite a large Spanish diaspora community in in the United States. Um, so I suppose, from that sense, the victory of, of of Franco means that they can no longer return to Spain. Um, it would be too dangerous. So effectively this Spanish anarchist diaspora or Spanish anarchist, um, immigrant or immigrant uh, community becomes, becomes an exile community. Uh, and there's various kind of attempts to, to keep this exile uh, community kind of alive um, throughout the, the 1940s and fifties and going on into the sixties and seventies. Um, so, I mean, they have a, a kind of cultural, uh, influence on the um, the makeup of the anarchist movement in general in the transatlantic countries. Um, you know, if you look at memoirs of uh, notable uh, figures in the movement, uh, you know they quite often talk about the groups of Spanish anarchists who they they learned from um, about the civil war and about anarchism in general. So uh, there's a kind of wide reach of Spanish anarchism even after after the uh, the defeat in Spain.
1: Excellent. Uh, Well, thank you for for coming here on the podcast and and answering some questions uh, for us. Um, It was really enlightening and, and interesting.
0: No problem. Glad to be here. Thanks very much.